This is John DeFalp from John Sandow's Bookshop in London. In today's podcast, we're looking at a rather different sort of book from our characteristic arts-related subjects. It's Crude Britannia, How Oil Shaped a Nation. And I'm delighted to welcome James Marriott, one of its two authors, the other being Terry McAllister, to talk about it. James helped set up the Environmental Arts and Pressure Group platform as an undergraduate 35 years ago and has worked ever since on environmental and sustainability issues with particular emphasis on the oil industry. This is his third book on oil and it focuses on oil in Britain, where we are, how we got there and where we're heading. It's an absolutely riveting account, not only of how oil permeates our daily lives and our landscapes, but also about the shifts in corporate structures and politics that have occurred. I'm no specialist in any of these matters, but I found the book deeply interesting and informative, written with an engaging lightness of touch, as the authors travel around the country observing and talking to people. So, James, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I wonder if you'd be kind enough to lead us into your book by reading the passage early on when you fill up with petrol um yes i'd be delighted to do that thank you very much indeed for inviting me to do this so uh, i'll read as follows from the in the prologue on the drive away from the site of the demolished corriton refinery in south essex we stop up at a petrol station near Basildon, and after filling up, we asked the woman serving at the till about where the lorries come to resupply the underground storage tanks. She's friendly, but all she knows is that it's a BP tanker that comes very early in the mornings. She's wearing a shirt with a BP logo on it, so we ask her if she's employed by the company. She replies, oh no, by MFG. Back in the car, aided by a chart we've compiled, we put together a trail of how the unleaded petrol got to our engine. The garage, with its BP sign we refilled at, is not owned by BP, but by MFG, the largest forecourt operator in the UK, itself owned by a US private equity company. It was supplied by a road tanker, which, although it was marked with a BP logo, was owned by XPO Logistics, a US transport multinational. The tanker driver does a circuit of tens of petrol stations, delivering mostly at night from the Thames oil port at the old Corriton refinery site. This storage depot is owned by Greenergy, a private equity company from London. The Thames oil depot at the Corriton site also supplies aviation fuel to Stansted, Gatwick, Heathrow, and RAF bases such as Honington in Suffolk, all via the UK's Oil Pipeline Authority. For 60 years, this authority owned pipelines and is itself owned by the British state as a matter of national security. Now, they're owned by CLH of Spain, whose largest shareholder is CVC, a private equity company registered in Luxembourg. The fuel that is delivered from Thames Oil is supplied to the storage depot by ship, most likely a tanker working for an oil trading corporation such as Vitol, a private company based in Switzerland. The tanker would have arrived from almost anywhere across the globe. It could have shipped fuel processed to meet EU standards in the refinery at Haldia in West Bengal, India. Where did the crude oil that fed that refinery come from? We know that BP has a contract to supply Haldia with oil, but from where that oil comes is commercially confidential. At this point, the trail has so many variables that we can no longer trace it through the thickets of the industrial world. Thank you. Now, that passage in your prologue seems to me absolutely extraordinary, and we'll come back to it. It has so many ramifications or aspects of it which, which emerge in your book. But to begin with, let's have a look at um, how we got to that position. Because 
At some point in the past, all these aspects of it were owned, would have been owned and organised by BP. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. They would have owned the ship. They would have owned, that brought the crude uh, crude oil to the refinery at Coriton. They owned the Coriton refinery. They owned the um, road tankers. They owned the petrol station. And the whole thing was owned within one within one uh, corporation. And so that sort of umbrella company for lots of different aspects of the industry. Yes. I mean, the, the, when, when we look at the corporation, a corporation such as BP or Shell or others in the 40s, 50s, 60s and 70s, they were very largely hermetic organisations. One beautiful way in which we can see that in our mind's eye is by thinking of the largest skyscraper in in the city of london in the late built in the late, in late 60s on the american model and it was britannic house up by moorgate and in that tower you had at the very top you had the uh, director's um the ceo's uh, office and then you had what was known as the golden trough which was the dining room for the uh, learning the company is the Golden Trough, which is a dining room for the uh, directors and uh, members of the board. And then he went all the way down through the tower block, through advertising, through uh, accounts and um, accountancies, all the way down to the bottom. There were dentists and uh, a dentist, and the, then in the basement there were Jaguars um, for for chauffeurs. And so you saw the whole thing is it just in one block, and. It was, in a way, a hermetically organised uh, structure. And now you have a totally disaggregated industrial system, uh, which and that has huge implications, both in control and ownership as well. So before before we go on to that, that the, the, the arrival, so to speak, of that system, can you give us a, just a... A brief introduction to how that occurred in Britain. In, I, I think I'm looking back. At, I'm, I'm considering the, the the emergence of the oil industry through war. Yes, I mean the oil began to be utilised in the British economy in the in the 1860s, um, but it didn't have anything like the kind of dominance that we've you and I have grown up to know it have have uh, until until really the war that of course there was there was a great deal of uh, well both the first war and I would say crucially the second war um, if we I think the, for me the transformation of British society into an oil society really took place in the second world war and and and, and a um, uh, an a sort of exemplar or archetype, a symbol of that transformation was the building of a pipeline system which underpinned the British state. So during the war, a whole set of pipelines were built which ran from Avonmouth in Bristol over to the Thames Estuary uh, in the east and then up north to Merseyside and then up to, up to the Humber. And they provided, in a sense, the kind of skeleton that lay beneath the, a new body politic, just as the railway lines, which led from coal mines from the 1830s onwards, provided the kind of skeleton for the body politic for much of the 19th century. This was a new backbone for the, for the world, and, or at least the, well, the, the UK, and it really symbolised a massive shift in 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 the policy. And the, these pipelines. And, and there's another beautiful. Sorry, go on. Well, I was going to say that the, these pipelines were owned by BP, but but, uh, but BP was owned by the state still at this point. Yes, I mean the 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 war also um, made a transformation of the position of private companies in relation to the state. Um, Essentially, by 1945, um, after six years of uh, of, of, of conflict, um, there was nothing to. It was almost impossible to distinguish the British state from the oil companies that that, that provided the key energy system for the conflict. 
that was in terms of practical organization, but also in terms of ownership, BP at that time was owned 51% by the UK state anyway, and Shell was intimately involved in, 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 in this the financial structures of the British state. And there's a very interesting moment at the end of the war. Of course, you get the Labour government in 1945 and its commitment to the nationalisation of industry. And many, many key industries were nationalised. Effectively, they, were, they had been under national control during the war and they moved into formal national control through things like the nationalisation of the coal industry in 1947. And that happened with electricity, it happened with water, it happened with the telephones and telegraph system. But the thing it didn't happen with was, was, was the oil industry. And what you had was the oil industry essentially having a symbiotic relationship with the British state, whereby it re retained its ability to, as it were, be a private capital concern, or two companies being private capital concerns, and yet had a commitment to be what they called national champions. And that's, that structure underpinned what we might call the social democratic um, phase of British history from 1945 to the mid-70s. And um, what then destabilised that? What, um, we all know that there was a oil crisis in the 70s, um, and the emergence of OPEC. How, how, what, what happened there, and how did that affect um, BP and its relationship with the government? Well, I think that the relationship between um, private, uh, the, the private corporations and government had begun to shift uh, before, in, in the 1960s. The British economy was, was in a sense, failing in comparison with its relative, uh, in, in comparison, for example, to Germany and Japan and, 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 and the US. And there were many actors who could try to consider why it was that we were failing in comparison to that. Within the oil industry, there were people at the very highest levels of the companies feeling that essentially we were, the, the corporations were, were following the a wrong business model and they began to see look towards the US as a key business model and that shift in thinking took place in the mid to late 60s and then that thinking was imported into business practice within the companies and then that business practice was imported into the the operations of the British state both in Whitehall and and, and Westminster so in a way you see that shift happening slowly through the 60s and into the 70s. Two other factors really accelerated that shift, which was already happening. One was the oil crisis in 72, 73, 74, and the, th the second was the discovery of oil and gas in the UK North Sea, and they uh, provided catalytic change. Can we come back to the North Sea? Um, for, at this point um, in the 70s, we still have a system of uh, refineries, crude, crude oil being shipped under the auspices of BP to refineries all around the UK who are pro processing the, it into gas and so forth and petrochemicals. They, the system, the grids, the pipelines are still, broadly speaking, owned by BP. Is that correct? Yes, and and Shell and and a whole and a, set, a range of other other corporates. Yeah, and the, and then um, in nineteen seventy seven, we get the great sell off. Is it seventy seven? The seventy six. So, what happened there, and why? Well, there was uh, again there were a number of uh, factors. One one was. The, the discovery of oil in the North Sea was an absolutely pivotal shift. Um, when oil, oil was begun to be, you know, gas was found in 64, um, but um, oil wasn't um, discovered until 1970. And it changed our, the attitude of British 
companies to the UK and the possibilities of the of the UK as an energy producer, whereas just uh, had previously been an energy consumer. And you see a situation where a company such as BP was very keen on trying to, in a sense, become separate from the British state that which it had been linked to for the previous 60 years. At the self-same time, the British state, the, oil, the government and Whitehall, saw an opportunity in the oil discoveries in the North Sea to bring those companies closer to the state. We should understand that in most parts of the world after 1940, after the Second World War, oil was a national industry. In France, it was run by Total, in, in Italy, Fina, uh, sorry, in Italy, Agip, and in most, most large states, the, the oil industry was a national concern. It wasn't a national concern in the U.S., uh, a nationalized concern in the U.S. and Canada, and we were, as it were, caught between those two different poles. And the British government, after the discovery of oil, was very keen on the idea that we should bring it closer in to bring it, make a, a real national oil industry, which partly led to the setting up of the British National Oil Corporation, BNOC, but secondly also the desire to bring BP even under greater, closer control by the British state and also exert the similar control over corporations such as Shell. So you see that tension. And then you have the IMF crisis, where the British economy is in a terrible state, and the IMF demand cuts in public spending. And within the Labour government under Callaghan, there's a great fight as to what should happen, how should we make those cuts? Should they happen? Should they not happen? Should we re reject the IMF loan? Should we not reject the IMF loan? And part of the process in that battle was the selling off of the UK's controlling, or a very large part of the UK's stake in BP. The consequence of that is that the company became, as it were, more separate from the state, and the state itself had to relinquish its position in relation to the North Sea. And that shift was accelerated after the Conservative government came to power in 79. So precisely at the moment when the, the British state thinks they want to have more control because of these discoveries and benefit from the North Sea, they actually, what actually happens is the reverse. So exactly. as I recall, Healy proposed selling it off and um, Tony Benn most vigorously and in retrospect perhaps comes out with the greatest honour of all politicians of the period in trying to retain control for the state um, of this, what, for, in an equivalent situation for Norway, was turned into a, a most amazing windfall. Um, the yeah. British state used to, to pay off the miners. Yes, I think that's a very, very important um, aspect. It, Norway had a very similar um, geological situation to the to the British uh, in the North Sea. Um, there's a geological continuum between the UK sector and the north uh, of the North Sea and the and the Norwegian sector of the North Sea. And the way in which Norway exploited its oil has been totally different from the way that the UK did. We, find, we found oil almost exactly the same time in 69-70, and the, the, the Norwegians exploited it through setting up their own national oil company, which um, later has, has re more recently been rebranded as um, because Statoil, and it became rebranded as Equinor, and they set up a thing called the Sovereign Wealth Fund. And that Sovereign Wealth Fund is one of the wealthiest funds in the world now, and basically underpins the Norwegian very high level of Norwegian um, welfare. Um, now, of course, Norway is a smaller country; it has a much smaller population. But we could have uh, done follow that Norwegian path, and our situation would be very different than it is now in terms of 
the amount of money coming from the North Sea historically into underpinning social uh, social welfare in this country and, and all that co goes with it. Um, it's interesting enough, there's one part of the country that did cut a different deal and did very well out of it, which was Shetland. Um, and Shetland had its own, um, in a sense, it had its own mini sovereign wealth fund. Um, and, and, and you can go there and you can see how much they benefited from it. And what happened in the North Sea then was that you, you describe it, um, the, the management of those of the North Sea oil being going under the wing of an American style management. You even go so far as to say that the North Sea platforms operate as a colony. Yes, I find it very interesting to look at the relationship in the book, we look at the relationship between the development of the UK North Sea and the decline of British, the British imperial structures. If you look, the, the, the starter gun for the North Sea was the finding of gas in Holland in 19, July 1959. And between that and the finding of oil, which was the a key pivotal moment in the UK sector in October 1970, between 1959 and 1970, we, the, the British relinquished 24 colonies. The 60s was this period of massive of massive uh, loss of British colonies, the new independent states, and a huge transformation both in our pol politics and economy. What I find fascinating is that, in a sense, that in the North Sea, you have a replication of the colonial structures within the home waters of the UK. If we look at a colony such as um, Nigeria in the 40s, 50s, 60s before it became independent we understand that it had a different um, political system to the one that happened in the home state i.e. it was different electoral structures, it had different set of legislations on terms of um, workers rights, it had different legislation in terms of environment for example and though exactly that same pattern happens in the North Sea off on those platforms, you have a different set of environmental regulations, you have a different set of workers' rights regulations, you have a different set of uh, 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 employment regulations, and so on. And essentially, they are out with the democratic control of the citizens of the UK state. And they really are, they sort of follow on from the culture of the first place from which they were born, which is Louis, the oil rigs and offshore systems of Louisiana, because the first oil rigs in the, in the North Sea in the six, late 60s of East, East Anglia were basically run on an American model, which was, um, which was totally male, uh, very gung-ho, very, in a sense, a, a military spirit, and of course, whites only to begin with. It... it brings to mind the word exploit the 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 structure the corporate structure you just you describe coming in from the states would have no hesitation i think in saying that they wish to exploit the oil fields for the, and and that and if you then ask for whose benefit that is that is going to be for the shareholders benefit is that, is that Ab ab absolutely. I mean, interesting enough, in a way, it's a reversion to the earliest forms of um, the British Empire, which is that if you look at, say, William Dalrymple's book about um, the anarchy and the East India Company, or you look at, similarly, the Royal Niger Company in Nigeria, essentially those, what became British colon colonial assets um, were run by private companies for private company gain. And the North Sea, in a sense, echoed that, um, echoed that uh, structure. It's very interesting that in the in the mid, we tend to think, say, for example, in the mid seventies, was the high point of reunionization in the British workforce. Seventy five, seventy six, seventy eight was the highest um, amount of unionization in the British workforce. At precisely that time even under a Labour government, you had the development of an enormous industry offshore, which was completely ununionized, in which unionization was effectively banned. So they operated under a different system.
It's a f- absolutely fascinating irony that, that, exactly as you described, the the a system set up for the exploitation of the raw material, but for the benefit of, f- I mean, uh, not accidentally, but quite actually for the benefit of the shareholders. That is the what the corporate structures required. That that the, the, the shareholders were the beneficiaries, not the. British state, and certainly not the the citizenry of the UK. Yes, absolutely, and I think what you know that's the that was the model that had been applied by um, Shell and BP across the world, and in a sense, it was brought back home in in the North Sea, and you see that very acutely. We may come on to this later or, or now, perhaps, as as being continued in in the current structures that are evolving out of the back end, as it were, of the life of these two companies. Um, the, the, at the same time, or it's not the same, it's not simultaneous, it's part of it, the rise in the idea of multinationals, that multinationals are, as you describe it, operating, they, they, they require government um, Involvement in the places where they are working, they, um, but they also um, are becoming something slightly independent from governments. They're operating in so many places. There's a the the sense of paternalism in BP is not something that is replicated in a multinational. Is that right? Yes. I mean, I think what's interesting is that you see this shift taking place within companies over a long time span. If we look at, say, for example, during the in the book, we we go to visit Grangemouth, and uh, there you can we drive around with um, a guy who who lives there, and we're looking at the houses that he grew up in, the house that he grew up in, and his parents. Um, another house his parents lived and and all the housing in the in the town was built by the company bp at the time and a social club and so on we also go to visit the villages in in north kent where, where all the houses in the villages were basically built by by bp we go to um a, an old refi- petrochemicals works in uh, in in cheshire where all the little houses were built by um by shell and both of both these companies and and others too, as you say, they took up a very paternal, it t- took a very paternal process uh, attitude in in the period after the after the war. As I say, but mentioned before, in a sense, it was part of the compact with the British uh, state that they would act as national champions and become, in a sense, providers of their own internal welfare system of housing and club social clubs. Of, of of insurance and pensions and so on, and that continues up until the late sixties. And it, but then in the early seventies, you see this kind of separation of the oil industry and the, and the British state. In one of the things that is constantly re- uh, referred to by Ben Tony Ben in his diaries, very closely written diaries of him being energy secretary in the mid mid 70s is his shock at how bp claims you know it says it's a national company but basically it's not it's actually operating on an international basis and it's not putting the country first and that sense of that shock was acutely experienced by by ted heath in the um oil crisis in 1973 he famously brought to Chequers the head of BP and the head of Shell and said, you're going to have to help us out now. And they essentially said, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to, we're not going to privilege the UK um, in the current crisis. We're going to uh, operate as international companies and our first and foremost loyalty is to our shareholders. And and that was a huge shock to Heath. He blamed, basically, he blamed his his downfall, or certainly the, the miners' uh, strike crisis, on on that disloyalty, as he saw it, from the company. So there's a separation then, a slow separation, and that becomes 
much more acutely the case from the 90s and into the 2000s. You see the same industry slowly moving away from being a national institution to being an international institution or a multinational institution, depending on which way you want to, to describe it. Is it coincidence, do you think, that that shift away from a paternalistic model uh, occurs as people are becoming more and more aware of the environmental impact of the oil industry? To what extent is it are the oil companies distancing themselves? I think that it, I think that it I think two things happen at the same time. The oil companies distance themselves and people distance themselves distance themselves from the oil companies. When I um you know, when I was a child, the the uh here was a was a essentially a, an industry which enveloped my whole, whole life. I I I Travelled in a car before I was born in my mother's womb. I collected uh, stickers from ga garages as a child. In fact, my first job was as a petrol pump attendant um, in West Sussex. And uh, in a sense, I, I grew up inside the, the world that this created, not only in terms of petrol, but also plastics and pesticides and everything. And slowly, I think you get to see in after particularly after the 2000s you get to see a sense of people se placing themselves as separate from this industry raising questions about should i have a car should i um you know should i pick up this plastic bag or should i have a paper one should i um buy uh, vegetables which have pesticides on them or should i buy vegetables which don't and you get the sense in which the culture the Brit british culture separates itself from those um from those given those those parts of the industry, and at self same time, you see the industry slowly separating itself from the British uh, polity, the British state. And well, I, I find those are two movements at the same time. That that brings us back to your initial reading, where this extraordinary separation of the different aspects of the oil industry are highlighted. And um, the, the different things, the petrol forecourt, the, the pipeline, the ownership of all these different aspects, the tankers, the lorries, um, the ownership of these, the, the, these assets which have been sold off by BP to different bidders, who are they? This um, term crops up more and more as the book pr progresses, private equity. So will you introduce us a bit to these, to, to who owns these, these aspects of it now? Yes, I think it, one of the things we try to do in the book, as I say, is to constantly meet the, meet the key characters to, to, to give us to give the read ourselves and the reader a sense of who are these people. It it it, it has, by the way, it, um, it, 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 there are aspects of it which read almost like a thriller because you you're, you as you say you you're wanting to meet these characters you're pursuing these people or not pursuing is perhaps the wrong term but finding out about these people who are they who do they who owns this who owns that so tell us a bit about that. Yes, I mean. It's worth, um, it's worth again remembering that in in uh, you know when I was a child in the in the sixties, seventies, and eighties and nineties, uh, and growing up, you, you know you could you could open up your newspaper and, and and see a picture of the the head of Shell or the head of BP. It was quite possible to do that, and and they were characters in the in 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 the stage play of of British life. Um, and that's also perhaps a reflection of the fact that they, that we owned a lot of these companies, in the sense that they were they were what known, what is known as publicly limited companies, which means that they had shares, 
billions of shares which were sold on stock markets and bought by individuals, but crucially bought by pension funds and other financial institutions. So everybody was involved in them. When we move into a world of private equity, private equity means that private individuals are putting their stake, their money into a large company, an oil company, for example, and owning that owning that stake privately, it's not, it's, not, it's not sold off in form of shares. And this is a very significant shift. I think you can best see it, or we try and explore it in the kind of concrete terms of little different bits of infrastructure. So, for example, we go on a search for the gas system of the UK, and we go to this place called St Fergus, which is up way up in the north east of Scotland, north of Aberdeen. Where and we visit this enormous terminal surrounded by razor wire, and this system was basically built by the British state, by the taxpayer, under the form of British Gas, as it was known at the time. And 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 we when we got there, we 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 discovered from a sign that it owned, was owned by uh, North Sea Midstream Partners (NSMP) and. My my co-author Terry has worked thirty years in the oil journalism business. He knows a lot of stuff about it, and we both looked at each other and we thought, "Who the hell is NSMP?" And we looked up in Google and we thought, "Well, okay, so it's own. It used to be owned by uh, a Boston private equity company, and it was sold off to the Q80s a couple of years before we got there, and the Q8 overseas investment company. But who was the key player? Ah, okay, it was this man here." Mike Wagstaff, who sold it, it was very involved in the sale of £1.2 billion pounds worth of it. And then we then go to look for Mike Wagstaff. And we have the good fortune of going to meet Mike Wagstaff, who, who's owner of a, a vineyard in, in, in North Surrey. And it, it's a fascinating meeting, because here is a man who is completely off the public register. You know, we have no real knowledge of him. I mean, we're specialists in this area, we'd never heard of him. It's never in the papers. And yet he has a controlling stake for a period of about a decade. He was basically the person who controlled and drew, and drew huge amounts of income from the 50 to 60 percent of the UK's gas supply system. Remarkable, really. And what's interesting is that this isn't just the case for, you know, in, in, in one solo solo um, example, it's pretty much replicated on every different aspect of the UK's energy supply now. A key, another key character we, we try to explore is a guy called James Ratcliffe, Sir, James, Sir Jim Ratcliffe. He's more publicly known because he was listed as the UK's richest man in 2017. He owns 60%, personally owns 60% of a thing called INEOS, and INEOS uh, is a very large player in the North Sea offshore. has the biggest refinery. It has all the has gas pipelines. It has oil pipelines, and yet it's privately owned. It's a private equity company. Uh, company. It has very little public uh, face to it. Jim Ratcliffe and the other two people who own it. They are tax exiles. They live in Monaco or Switzerland, and it's not the company is not even domiciled in the UK tax area. We tried extremely hard to get an interview with Ineos. We tried for four, three, three and a half years and we still failed because they're not interested in talking to anybody, really any journalist at all. Um, they're just hidden behind, um, uh, in a sense, uh, behind just a lack of interest in promoting themselves publicly apart from a little bit here and there for brand. And what I find interesting is that the roads and roads are still full of cars. The gas is still pumped to your house to heat your um, heat your gas turb uh, uh, hot water system. And yet, where it was once owned by a company which you could identify and you could see the CEO in the newspapers, now it's owned by lots and lots of smaller companies who you can't identify, and the individuals are very hidden from public view. And each one of these individuals uh, has what sort of accountability and to whom? Well, 
Well, again, what's really fascinating is that most of these smaller companies are domiciled, i.e. they registered for tax outside the UK. So when I, in that piece I described there, at the beginning we, we talked about the uh, oil tanker that would have been BP, now is VTOL delivering fuel to Coriton. VTOL is based in Switzerland, um, and of course that has tax benefits. Uh, the um, the Greenergy, which is uh, owns the terminal, is based in the UK, but it's a private equity company. It's uh, not you. There's no public representation of it. You can't go to its annual general meeting or something. The tanker, which I talked about, the road tanker is run by XPO. XPO is a private equity company based in the US. MFG, which is the forecourt owner, is a private equity company based in the US. And the pipelines that supply even the RAF are owned ultimately by a private equity company based in Luxembourg. And so you can see that, in a sense, control has shifted out, out with the UK. And that's okay. You could say it's a who cares? You're still getting fuel in your um, car. But um, it shows the, the lack of public knowledge, the lack of accountability, the lack of scrutiny, and ultimately also the lack of revenue to the UK exchequer. I was going to and say that, also, go on. Yeah, that, that revenue to the UK exchequer, it means that the, the, the UK is not benefiting from its own resources. Absolutely, yeah. The, Absolutely. The, the individuals are benefiting, not the UK in any way at all. They're not even getting tax. Yes, yes, absolutely. Or, and to some extent, Switzerland and Luxembourg and Monaco are benefiting as well. But, I mean, also this very significant, what one might call security issues. You may remember, yeah. it's 20 years ago, that there was a thing called the um, road tankers strike. They all went on strike, effectively, and blockaded the the refineries. And um, that led to a sort of crisis whereby our, our um, supermarkets weren't being... Uh, filled up in in two, year 2000, this was September 2000, it caused a huge panic in government and they got Shell and BP in the room and said, now help, please help us sort it out. If that happened now, they wouldn't even know how to get in the room. We discussed this at some length with bits of the government, uh, the key player within the government. You don't even know who's in the room to get into the room to ring up, tell the tanker drivers to remove their trucks, as it were. The, the, the frailty of the system is acute, really acute. And I find that extremely interesting. The, so the, the, the systems, therefore, are in effect, beyond... They don't, they don't need government involvement, particularly, in the way that BP did. And they are, in a sense, beyond the reach of nation-states and legislature, national legislatures. Yes, that's true. I think that historically, um, the oil industry from the from the First World War onwards has has um, as other industries as well has had a kind of symbiotic relationship with nation states. So, Total in France, Fran Total was France's oil company. Exxon was the UK's um, US's company. BP was was BP was the UK's company, and Shell was half half Dutch and half um, British. And there was, as I say, a symbiosis there whereby the oil companies helped support the state. At the same time, the state was there to back it up militarily and in, 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 in um, certainly diplomatic terms. VTOL is one of the largest oil companies in the world now, which you will never, most people never really have heard of. It's based in Switzerland. Now, Switzerland doesn't have much diplomatic power. It certainly has no military power beyond its borders apart from in the Vatican, perhaps. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, it doesn't need a state to support it. And Monaco, which, as I say, where Ineos is to some extent based, it doesn't have any military power, it doesn't have diplomatic power. The people who own the pipelines, CVC, they're based in Luxembourg, that has no diplomatic power, really, and certainly no military power. So you have these corporations which don't need those states anymore. 
And similarly, uh, the states don't have any benefit from them. So you're seeing this slow separation, as it were. We've, all our lives we've talked about the church and state in the sense and the question of the separation of those two, and certainly in the US context. And here you are seeing energy in the state separating. All, all of this is, a, of course, a rather gloomy uh, portrait of a world of blowfelts and where Ian, <laughs> Ian Fleming is a prophet. But um, uh, at the same time, you describe an extremely a different kind of a shift um, in which um, asset managers um, in the form of pension funds or, and so forth, the people who, uh, who, who, all, who have influence where, where there are public companies, um, changing their briefs a bit, but responding to cultural shifts. And in particular, um, in what little time perhaps we have left, uh, towards wind um, energy. So you do talk in your book uh, about this shift towards wind and, and, and the ownership structure there and the extent to which it m might replace the UK's energy requirements will it just yes i mean for me the, 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 there's the and we explore this a lot in the book there's a there's a key question about uh, there's the relation there's energy systems and then there's the that how that relates to ownership and that's in a sense always been a historical question if we go back even to the ownership of water mills in the in the middle ages there's a key key uh issue the key point of struggle and as as I've talked about um, in the in in the twentieth century, there's a battle between the oil companies and the British state over who owns this oil, who owns the oil companies that that um, that exploit the oil. And now we have a similar situation whereby, in, in terms of the question of the future of wind, the UK is extraordinarily based, blessed. Um, in terms of uh, its physical location, it is one of the best places to harvest wind in the world. Uh, we have already one of the biggest oil wind industries in the world in terms of the size of the country and in the, in the population. But all but about one percent of the wind farms off the UK are not owned by UK by UK companies or the UK state at all. There's virtually no UK state involvement. Um, most of it is owned by uh, foreign-based companies, and many of those are foreign-based state companies. For example, north, off North Wales is a large wind farm owned by the city of Munich, or uh, near uh, near where I live on the um, uh, on the uh, Thames Estuary. There are big wind farms which are owned by the Abu Dhabi state, or the Swedish state, or the Danish state, but none by the British state. And we are moving very rapidly into a wind and solar world. And we need to do that for climate change reasons. And it's a good thing, as, as, as I can see. And, and yet the question is, who will own that wind? You know, who will own the, the way in which it's, um, uh, the way in which it's harvested through wind farms? And the way in which it's distributed to users such as ourselves working on this on these laptops, that is a key a key question. Is it to be owned uh, by, um, for example, that some of the electricity coming from the wind farms is owned by the Swedish state in the form of Vattenfall, or could it be owned uh, and controlled by uh, communities or the British or British um, local authorities or British state? And that, I think, is a key area where we're going to there's going to be a lot of struggle around this in the coming decades, and rightly so, because the way in which energy is used affects the structure of the culture that are built around it, and but crucially, the way in which the ownership of energy is used that is used that affects the 
structure of the culture around it. It affects everything from music to film to even to to, to literature and novels, as such as you sell in, in, in you're selling on a day to day basis. Your reference to music reminds me to mention that the book is shot through with music, to music that has emerged in the last couple of generations out of the oil culture. Each chapter begins with a quote from various bands, PJ Harvey, OMD, Dr Feelgood, others. The book is a delight. It covers so many different areas. The relationship between energy and ownership is fascinatingly and humorously explored. It is a book that anyone who thinks will enjoy. And with that, I think we should wind up and say that it is published by the Pluto Press and available at £20 from John Sandoz. And I'm sure that if we ask nicely, then James will sign some copies. So let us know if you would like one. Thank you, James, for your time. Thank you, Johnny. Very much indeed. <laughs>